As worshipers leave the sanctuary in a Presbyterian church in Birmingham, Alabama, they see a plaque on the wooden doors with this message. You are now entering the mission field. So they're reminded that as the service ends, their service begins. Today we celebrate Christian Vocation Sunday. It's always connected with Labor Day weekend. And this is the time of the year when we remember that all of us have a mission to do. Mission work, work in Christ's name, bringing God's love and peace and justice to the world, whether that's in the boardroom or in the classroom, on the loading dock or in the kitchen. And so we always invite three of our members to describe to us what that looks like for them. Today we welcome Peter McConnell, Raquel Nelson, and Peter Anderson. Let us listen for God's word. Our second reading is in the letter to Colossians, chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. It may be found on page 156 of the New Testament section in your pew Bibles. Whatever your task, put yourselves into it, as done for the Lord and not for yourselves, not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You serve the Lord Christ. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. weeks ago, I was lucky enough to play my guitar on stage along with two old friends and the San Francisco Symphony in front of about 3,000 cheering fans of video games. The best thing about it was that my wife Amy and my children Alice and Eben were in the audience. This was a rare opportunity and it reminded me that I'm a lucky guy. I get to do something I love, I get to work at home. And occasionally, I get some great feedback from people. Of course, not everyone understands. When people ask what I do, and I say, I write music for games, sometimes the response is, wow, cool. Uh, Other times, it's kind of quizzical. Uh, That's bloops and bleeps, right? And sometimes, I can hear the wheels turning. Video games. Those things are evil, (laughs) or at least a waste of time. So I have to admit that uh, I have a little trepidation uh, in considering and asking the question, how is my work meaningful to me, to others, to God? What, how does a video game composer fit into the body of Christ? (laughs) It seemed appropriate at that moment. I'll start with an observation. I cannot remember ever not being passionate about music. Ask me how I first got into music, and I will say, by being born. 
We lived in Switzerland when I was young, and I had health problems as an infant. I couldn't make a sound much above a whisper because I had to breathe through a cannula, which was basically a hole in my neck. But I overcame that obstacle and found a way to sing before I could talk. I have some vivid memories of hearing hymns in the cathedral where we attended church and of cowboy ballads sung by the Sons of the Pioneers. Some of you may know who those guys are. On my dad's reel-to-reel tape player, I truly feel that music was God's great gift to me. It was the universal language in my bilingual world. It gave me comfort and connected me to the world of the spirit, and it connected me to my home country, America, a place I couldn't remember but could only imagine. Music made me belong. Finding my path still took a lot of struggle and many detours. Learning to play instruments, studying math and physics in college before finally switching to music because that's what I thought the thing was to do. Working as an audio software engineer when all I really wanted to do was play in bands. It wasn't until I was 30 that I found a way, thanks to a former bandmate and classmate, to make the transition from engineer to musician in the emerging industry of video games. Then one more transition. At 40, I left my longtime post at LucasArts to compose independently, facing some very tough years trying to support a young family on not much work. Now every morning I get up and thank God for the work I have, even if sometimes it's a little too much. 70 and 80 hour weeks are not uncommon when things are in full swing. Which brings me to the challenges my work poses for me as a husband, a father, and a Christian. Those of you who work for yourselves know it's hard to say no to any job since you never know where the next gig is going to come from. And long hours come with the territory of doing production work under a deadline. So despite the joy of seeing my children play right outside my studio, I often can't join them as much as I'd like. And I could do a better job of keeping the Sabbath. And then there's the question of how my work fits into society, let alone how it serves God. Except for a comic parody or two, I've been lucky not to work on some of the violent games that uh, my industry is justifiably notorious for. And... uh, You know, some of the the titles I work on are just silly fun, and others do actually rise to the level of of, uh, telling a story that's worth pondering. But every game is a team effort, and I'm not always comfortable with all the content that I score. Sometimes I say something about this, and sometimes I don't. My father passed away nearly a year ago. He served as a minister for many years and continued to serve God after his retirement. I have big shoes to fill when it comes to making my work relevant to God's work. Like many people who aren't ministers, I think I bring my faith into my work in everyday interactions with people. I may not proselytize, but anyone who has worked with me for a while knows that my faith is an integral part of my life. 
And I believe that, like music itself, our work is a gift we give to others as well as to ourselves. So whether I'm on the phone with a client recording an orchestra or just making bloops and bleeps, I try to remember that as I remember it now here in this sanctuary with gratitude to all those who have given me that same gift. I've already done the two things I told my husband I was worried I would do, which was to have a huge coughing fit and to cry. So I got that out of the way. I have the classic teacher's voice that most of us get. Yes, I talk a lot. I talk all the time, but I don't talk as much as I do at the beginning of the school year. So getting my chops back up takes a little bit of effort. So bear with me if I have another fit. If this was my classroom, by the way, I would not be standing here. I don't like to stand behind the podium when I'm in my classroom. I would be walking amongst you. I would be making lots of eye contact. I would be making sure that you weren't texting your friends. (laughs) I would be asking you questions to make sure that there was understanding, and I would be engaging you in dialogue the whole time. So please bear with me as I learn a new skill by speaking from the pulpit. I was always meant to be a teacher, but I didn't know it until I was in my early 20s. Of course, my younger sister would tell you that I had honed the skills of giving directions, making an agenda, and instructing others on exactly what to do from a very early age. She would also tell you that I was not a very patient or very loving teacher in those early years. It would take much more education and experience before I would begin to develop those crucial skills. When I was in high school, I could easily tell you that the absolute worst teachers I had were the history ones. From sophomore world history, the only thing I remember is watching the movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High. (laughs) From junior year U.S. history, I remember reading notes from an overhead projector and answering the questions at the back of the sections. And from senior year economics, I remember waving to my teacher, Mr. Edney, as we walked out of class to go to McDonald's for lunch. It was not a stellar introduction to the subject or to the way it could be taught. Jump one short year later to a summer class at UNCA Asheville and to a professor who surprised me with his depth of passion and energy for all things colonial. When he described his annual tradition of celebrating the 4th of July with his family and his neighbors, of holding a glass of brandy while he read word for word the Declaration of Independence, I was transported. I was there and experiencing it with him. A switch had been turned on in me, and for the first time, I saw what a history classroom could and should look like. When I pursued my undergraduate education at UNC Chapel Hill, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to major in and didn't declare until the last possible moment. I loved going to class, I loved being surrounded by people from all over the United States and even the world who simply sought to learn. But after that summer course, American history took it to an entirely new level, yet I still didn't know I wanted to teach it. 
Fast forward a couple of years and I'm working as an education department secretary at a children's museum in Tallahassee, Florida. And I quickly realized that all the people having fun were the ones in the summer camps, the preschool classrooms, and the weekend workshops. Both the teachers and the students loved it. I finally realized that I wanted to be in those classrooms, and not as a student any longer, but as the teacher. So I enrolled in the master's program at Florida State. My sister would probably tell you that if I had been paying any attention at all, I would have known I was going to be a teacher from the very beginning. Yes, my behavior was a big clue, but my genetics were a pretty big indicator too. As many of you know, my father is a college professor and has taught religion and humanities for most of his life. Well, his father was a teacher too, but of high school vocational arts, shop, carpentry, drafting. My grandfather's students called him the hawk because he never missed a thing. Teaching is my calling. It's in my blood. It was what I was made for, and it is truly a labor of love. Joanne has asked me before to be a part of this special service as we honor all labor and share how our faith influences our chosen vocations. <coughs> but last year, I was not in a place where I felt... <coughs> Excuse me. But last year, I was not in a place where I felt I could share that passion and that conviction. For the last three years, I was the teacher leader for my department, a position that required a great deal of time and energy to work with the adults at our site and in our district. My work I did as a leader was inspiring and challenging and pushed me to develop new skills and knowledge that helped me be a better educator every single day. However, the work was also the most difficult I have ever done in my entire life. Schools are very political structures filled with individuals all over the spectrum, opposing agendas from within and without, and official mandates that can often be nearly impossible to accomplish. I have joked with some of my dearest friends that one of the reasons I started attending church more consistently these last few years was because I desperately needed reminding on how to turn the other cheek and how to love one's neighbor as oneself. The students are rarely difficult to work with, it's always the adults who are the hardest. But I don't regret being a teacher, nor a teacher leader, never. It pushed me to limits I didn't know I had. It provided amazing opportunities for professional development and personal growth. It pushed me to be a better leader, a better teacher, and a better person. Every day, every situation, every person is an opportunity for growth. When I walk in my classroom, I know that my Drake students my kids, as I call them, don't often have a choice about whether or not they want to be there. They also come to school with their minds filled with everything from family and friends to sports and Instagram, just about anything but the subject of history. I only have them in my classroom for four hours a week. How much can I really accomplish in that time? I'm not really sure. But what I do know is that they hunger for knowledge. They are open. They are eager to be challenged. They are curious. I firmly believe that my job is to be present, to pay attention, to be patient, to provide a healthy and safe structure within which they can explore and they can fail and they can try again and again until they succeed. Does it sound a little familiar? 
Believe me, I pay very close attention to what Joanne and Diana do every day, and mostly on Sundays for me. This church is one of my favorite classrooms. Jesus was a teacher. Talk about some incredibly intimidating shoes to try to fill. Sure, he was a carpenter too, but I'm not sure any craftsperson worries that their bookcase doesn't look exactly as good as Jesus's did. <laughs> but I guarantee you that any educator who is Christian and or respects the teachings of Jesus thinks often about the role he played and continues to play in our lives. His classroom had no walls. His wisdom pushed and provoked, and his students were diverse and challenging. He is an exemplary model of what a teacher should be, and I try each and every day to learn from his example. Whether I'm in my classroom, out on the football field, or at Iron Springs, I'm always teaching. The subject matter I cover demands that I present it with sensitivity and wonder, and that I cultivate in my students a strong ability to think critically. My Drake kids come in all different packages, but with the same overwhelming desire to be loved and accepted. I tell them they are beautiful. I remind them that they are strong. I make sure that they know if they need help that I'm always here for them. I don't only tell them that I love being with them. I also tell them that I like being with them. I know I may be one of the only adults who will have told them that they matter that day. Many people ask, how on earth can I work with teenagers? How can I not? They are one of the most fascinating species on the planet. <laughs> what I do is hard, and it's demanding, each and every day. But it is always worth it. Because the kids, the students, are always worth it. I ask God every day for the strength and ability to do what I do, and to do it well. I ask for forgiveness when I get it wrong, which is often and for the maturity to be able to admit it and to try again. I ask for patience when dealing with people and the pressures that can make my work difficult. But most importantly, I thank God each and every day for the labor that I have, because I truly feel very blessed to be able to do it. I am a teacher. When Joanne asked me to speak to you about why I am an environmental activist, I thought that is way out of my comfort zone. <laughs> but challenging times require each and every one of us to step out of our comfort zones. So here I am speaking to you about why I am an environmental activist. In 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a prominent German theologian, who spoke up against the Nazis and for that lost his life, said, sometimes we can act with too little too late. In 1962, when I was a college student, I was riding my bicycle past the seminary theater on Kensington Road, just a block from here, when members of this congregation were departing by bus for the Deep South to register voters. I was impressed by their courage. Their journey was dangerous, even life-threatening, and I wanted to get on that bus. In 1985, I visited the library at the seminary on the hill here. In Sojourner's Magazine, I found an article by Jim Wallace 
the activist theologian who founded Witness for Peace. Wallace believed that we had a responsibility to speak up against what was happening to the people in the war zone in Nicaragua. To remain silent was to be complicit. I was one of several thousand men and women who volunteered over a period of several years to go to Nicaragua with Witness for Peace. One of our leaders, Don Chase, was a retired Presbyterian minister in his 80s. Don was a role model, a man of deep faith, who refused to be silent and dared to go where the battle raged. I miss him, but I sense his spirit in this church. Nicaraguans feel that the presence of Witness for Peace prevented the United States invasion. The church was not acting with too little too late. From 2001 to 2009, I worked on restoring several tributary streams of the Napa River. In 2009, the California economy collapsed and my job as project manager ended. We had been working closely with the Department of Fish and Game, which believed that endangered steelhead trout were still spawning in the deep pools in the upper reaches of our creek. At the time our project ended, I discovered that a new vineyard with a deep well near to the pools was taking all of the water, sucking the pools dry. Years of hard work with biologists, vineyard managers, school kids, and over a million and a half dollars to restore this sacred spawning stream was obliterated. It was then that I became an environmental activist. Because of that, I decided to go on a pilgrimage. I traversed this country and Canada. I saw the dead pinyon pines, fine forests of Arizona and New Mexico. I saw the Mississippi so low that tugs and barges were stacked up for months waiting for the rains. I saw the creeks of West Virginia running brown and foamy from the toxic runoff from the blasted mountaintops. I saw hundreds of square miles of Nebraska farmland flooded by the rampaging Missouri River. I saw the Salmon River wilderness of Idaho where I had worked as a river guide. There were miles of dead and dying pine trees. Climate change is real. It is happening quickly everywhere. The good news is that everywhere I visited, I met people coming together to meet the challenge. I saw this in East Texas, Lincoln, Nebraska, and in the Unis Toten tribal lands of far northern British Columbia. I saw this spirit in Washington, D.C. when 1,200 pipeline protesters were arrested with Bill McKibben of 350.org. Last July, the elders of the Unis Toten clan of British Columbia housed and fed us. They asked us to share their story. Their forests are dying from climate change. And last October, I was in East Texas, where the tar sands pipeline blockaders joined ranchers, Cherokee elders, young Marine veterans, Southern Baptists, and retired folks. We shared meals, stories, and linked arms to stop the pipeline. I saw the power and spirit of this community on August 3rd at the Chevron Refinery in Richmond, California. 
We were protesting Chevron's criminal negligence that caused an explosion and a release of toxic fumes that sent 15,000 people to the hospital. Thousands participated and hundreds were arrested, including members of this congregation. Our government's responsibility is to protect the commons, which includes our aquifers, our rivers, our forests, our mountains, and the air we breathe. We broke the law because our government broke its contract. To remain silent and inactive now is not an option. This is the time to step forward, speak up, and protect Mother Earth. If not now, when? I urge you to go to the website 350.org to take action or talk to members of church and society and our new committee on global warming. We need you, and we have lots of really cool ideas. Thank you.